as I look at the uh, possibilities of um, of text this morning, what we would uh, consider, uh, I've been reminded of of several passages, and um, I was I've been captured lately as as last week I looked at um, a couple of passages, one from First Peter and one from uh, Hebrews, uh, and the word. Last just kind of jumped out at me. Um, in First Peter verse 20, we have, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. Or from first chapter, second verse of Hebrews, in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. Last. Unique days. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Powerful stuff. Marie and I came in uh, from Europe, oh, I guess two years ago now, maybe three, um, and our ride, uh, my brother-in-law said, something is astir. Uh, I have good news, surprising news for you, but um, I'm not allowed to tell. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Who's pregnant? <laughs> And he looked at me, and then he blurted that he, you know, he just had to tell that his his stepdaughter, uh, my niece, uh, who I think was about to be forty, uh, was pregnant with her first child, and her husband, who is forty five, forty six, made an interesting comment when told that uh, his wife was pregnant. He said, well, I don't, I don't know that we were expecting uh, that, but I don't think our lives will change that much. <laughs> everything will be the same. No, 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 no. Contrary, everything is different. Isn't it interesting that the anticipation of... Um, of the birth is really something and we, we're just no matter how prepared we are for it we're really not too prepared for what happens when we're invaded with the birth of a baby and it was a first Noel we sing about it at Christmas time that really captures my attention this morning and I trust will yours as well as we think about what was this first Noel? This, the word Noel is a French word that means birthday. What was this going to be? Now, you have to kind of think of the birthday as the day of birth. <laughs> like the Chinese do. Uh, when you're born, you're, you have your first birthday. <laughs> uh, so, when, when you ask a Chinese man or woman how old they are, and they say 32, that means, in your language, they're 30. <laughs> you see, that's why the world needs abacus, you know. <laughs> oh, my. 
Well, what is unique in many ways about understanding the first Noel, the birth of this baby, is that God had not spoken for 400 years. Now think about this. The voice, the prophetic voice of God had been quiet from the end of Malachi and his prophecy, announcing that one would come to, to break that silence by the name of Elijah. Elijah would return, breaking the silence and announcing that God was up to something really big. But they waited and they waited. And Malachi never said, you're going to have to wait 400 years for this news. They didn't know it was going to be a birth of, of a baby that was going to change and make, may I say, all the difference in the world. But they knew that God, when God spoke and God drew near, it was important for them to pay attention. And when I think of um, those who were in Israel who paid attention and whose heart were, was longing for the inbreaking of God, my heart is taken to the Christmas story and to Luke chapter 2. And I, I, I remember Anna uh, working in the temple daily, 80-some years old, daily she ministered in the temple and her heart was being made ready for the inbreaking of God. Or Simeon, as he, he would later get an opportunity to hold the baby Jesus and to, to announce that they, the consolation of Israel was in his arms. <laughs> this is what he had been praying for. And God drew near and blessed them. But it was not so everywhere. You might be surprised to know that following the great captivities of Israel. Now, for those of you that don't like history, uh, you know, hang in there the best you can this morning because um, I love history. <laughs> and um, uh, the History Channel was made for me. You know, uh, all of the History Channels. <laughs> and, uh, what a wonderful thing a DVR is that you can just, you know... Go, pick and choose and then record them and when you get a chance look at them but in the 8th 8th century what was uh, a term the Nazis of the of the 8th century the Assyrians came and routed Israel and took the 10 northern tribes uh, collectively known as Israel took them away into captivity didn't take all of them no took leadership so uh, military leadership, political leadership, religious leadership, anybody who might be an upstart uh, leader among the people who were still in Israel could not have an easy time of forming allegiances and disrupting the empire. All the Assyrians wanted them to do was to pay their taxes, their tributes as being vanquished people, and behave themselves as they set up new lives in Nineveh and the other territories of ancient Assyria. 150 years later came the Babylons, Babylonians. And uh, with a new capital in Babylonia, uh, they routed the two southern tribes and uh, took the same kind of groupings off into captivity. The next um, big bullies on the block the superpowers were the Persians, and God raised up Cyrus to allow the people to return, 
But not all of them returned to the land. Not all of them came back to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild their homes, to reestablish uh, their religious circles and cycles of life. Many of them had invested themselves now in the, in, in the territories to which they had been um, subjected to. And so they lived in, in uh, dispersion, and it was called the Great Dispersion or the Diaspora. It might surprise you to know that one Roman writer says that there were fully one million Jews living outside of Israel, ancient Israel. Now, even if that number is inflated, you can see that the size of the communities of Jewish people living outside of Jerusalem and away from Palestine was sizable. And what is always the danger of that? The danger is of the assimilation and the accretions of ancient and foreign cultures coming into to the lives and the fabric of society. It happens, some of you, um, those of you who have grown children, married children, maybe one of your children was a believer and they married an unbeliever. And what happens? Almost in every case, the unbeliever pulls down the life of the believer. Now, that because the marriage happens not in accordance with the Word of God. To be equally yoked, they become unequally yoked. And I wish it were different. I know the pain of that in my own family. And I don't see my sons drawing closer to God. I see them being pulled further away, even though they made professions of faith. If that happens in one generation, imagine what happens over century after century after century. Where was the hope of Israel. Isaiah said that Israel was to be a light to the nations. What kind of light was that? When they lived in isolation from all that had been sacred to their forefathers and they could scarcely remember their forefathers, let alone follow the traditions that would draw them near to God and hold sacred what their forefathers held and kept near F.F. F. Bruce says that um, there were many living in the, in, in the remote areas, such as Turkey, ancient Phrygia. He said they were, their devotion to the law and their proneness to assimilation was, uh, was quite uh, common in the, in the remote areas. What was true about that first century was that there were many Jews who had lost sight of the power of God and who scarcely believed that God was going to make any difference at all. That there was no inbreaking anticipated, no presence and power of God. And that, I wonder, after 2,000 years, are we not a society much like that? Is not our society about us tuned out? Um, we, we have an announcement on the marquees of the latest movies, but what about word of the Father now in flesh appearing? You know, where is that? Where, where is, the, is the hope of the ages to be found in our culture, our society? I want us this morning to take a a, a closer look at the world into which Jesus came. In the first century, 
Because I submit to you that it's not that much different in terms of, of some of the, the values that we share in the 21st century. The same hardness of heart and darkness is prevalent today as it was then. Let me give you some categories to think about. And keep in mind that we're talking about the hope of the first Noel to make a difference. The birthday of the king will make a difference. But Jesus' world, the world he came into, ought not to be overlooked because there are some interesting parallels. There was rampant political corruption at every turn. There was unfair taxation. They had a lot of taxes to pay. They were subjected country. They had indemnities to pay for having lost the war, as it were. And so they had to pay their taxes. One of the first questions the Germans loved to ask me uh, when I've, we were living in, uh, in Germany was, um, how, many ta- how much taxes do you pay? Um, we pay, and I think the figure they, they shot me was about 48% of the, their tax of their, of their gross income was paid in taxes. And I said, well, yeah, but you pay it all at one time and it's all grouped together. They, you know, the social taxes and the federal taxes and the sales taxes and all that stuff comes. They have a value-added tax. It's um, 19% in Germany and 25% in Hungary, etc. And I, I started doing the math, and I'm going, well, let's see, uh, in Social Security and um, excise tax and sales tax and property tax and Illinois tax. I said, it's about the same. <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in that neighborhood. We just, we call it different taxes, and it seems unfair at times. And in fact, I had one a Hungarian businessman tell me there's so much corruption in Budapest and in Hungary is that if we paid all of the taxes that the government says we owe as businessmen, I would have to pay something like 96% of my income in taxes. He says, I cannot live. I cannot exist. My business cannot thrive on paying 96% taxes. That's why there's a black market. And there were unfair taxes in the Roman system as well. And I'm sure you've never heard of patronage um, they had patronage in the first century. It's who you know and to what group you belong would be the guarantor of a, a good paying job, and particularly in the political system. And there was leadership that was uh, placing the highest value on self-promotion and we would term it re-election. Self-promotion, self-perpetuation, what is best for the family, you tell Rome what they want to hear. You, uh, you pay your tributes and your taxes to stay, on, to stay on Rome's good side, and then you make as much profit as you can. And there was palace intrigue in Washington. Oh, did I say Washington? I meant in uh, Jerusalem. In fact, um, it's reported that uh, Herod had... Um, a death wish for most of his relatives. He, he, he insisted that anyone close to him who might be a threat to his power be put to death. 
including about 70 members of his own family. It was said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's court than to be a relative. Now, Herod is called the Great, and he was on a massive building campaign, and he did have a great skill as a builder. He built the Hippodrome. He built, uh, he was going to be the builder of the, the temple in Jerusalem in the first century, and, and the groundwork for that was getting underway um, when Jesus was born. And he built this wonderful city. It's, it is a marvelous architectural city called Caesarea Martima or Caesarea by the Sea. Any of you been to Israel and seen, seen this city? It's underwater today because of the rise of the Mediterranean. But if you go to Caesarea by the Sea, uh, you'll see the, the track of where the Hippodrome was. You will see the theater that is still standing that Herod built. And if you walk out on this peninsula that was uh, part of the harbor system, Herod used the best in Roman engineering and technology of the time to build a harbor that was second to none. You can see it today. They, they even knew how to set mortar, in con- make concrete, and have it set underwater. They were, they were the most advanced technological engineering um, entity in that part of the world, for sure. And uh, how did he pay for all of that? He didn't pay for it just in taxes. He paid for it by some shrewdness on his own. And Herod um, had a monopoly on the spice trade. And, and I, th- I think the only thing you can compare it to so that you'll understand it is probably like the cocaine or the heroin trade. His profit on it was not 100%, not 400%, it was 4,000%. He made 400 times what it cost him to bring spices in from the Orient, from India and China, and bring them through the Gulf of Aqaba and up the trade route that came through uh, the, the, the Fertile Crescent, through Jerusalem, and then on down to, 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 to Swat Harbor, Caesarea Martima, and the ships that were waiting there were waiting to take the spices to Rome because the Romans had been, become quite accustomed to better tasting food. There were foodies in Rome <laughs> who enjoyed the spices that were part of the Orient and they were willing to pay 400 times what they cost. So, you know, they didn't have refrigeration and, and, and who likes um, salt uh, cod and and uh, salt meat if you can get the fresh stuff and make it taste good. So Herod was uh, occupying the, the land and the buildings that were going up overshadowed much else that was happening in that first century. And if you listen, you can hear the prelude of the first Noel coming into that world. It was indeed a Roman world. Um, even though Herod was the, the figurehead ruling in Israel at that time, he and the appointed governors were all were allowed to rule because of the Roman authority in the city of Rome. How did that happen? Family relationship, trying to rule. 
Now, now let me give you a fast tour again. I told you this is a history lesson. Remember the Assyrians? Come down to the 7th century. You have the beginning of the Roman Empire. You're going to have the Greek Empire. Um, the, the Persians are, are going to be displaced quickly. Greeks take over. When the Greeks are finished, there's a, there's a rise of independence among the and it's called the Hasmonean family. But the two brothers, who, the, who were the strongest, couldn't get along. They wanted to be leaders. And so they looked around them. They saw the strong arm of the Romans to the, towards, they looked towards Rome. And they said, well, we'll invite the Romans to settle, settle which brother should get. And Pompey came and decided that neither one of the brothers deserved to rule. And he stayed. From that point on, 63 B.C., Israel defined as a Roman colony of Judea, Samaria, and uh, Rome um, impressing their, um, their culture, their language, everything about them upon who were their tenant farmers, as it were. Latin became the lingua franca of the, of the political, geopolitical world. They had Roman coinage. That shouldn't be a surprise. Do you remember when they brought that coin uh, uh, Jesus? Um, what, do you, what do you have? See the coin. Show me a coin. Now, whose, whose image is on this? Well, that's the Caesar's image. Yes, it is. Then you render to Caesar the things that belong to him and the, the things of God that belonged to him. There were political appointments to be made and they all had to do with the Romans. This tactic of the Romans was uh, done with such uh, impunity that it was above the law. They farmed it out and they, they called the tax the publicia and the word publican, uh, a word detestable in the first century. The publicans and the sinners, the publican was a society who did the bidding of Rome. He bid the highest price for taxes and the, the Romans said, okay, pay up front and then you will give you a license to do whatever you want to to get replenished. It was totally corrupt. The Roman culture was punctuated with excesses and debaucheries. Roman law, if you were a citizen of Rome... Uh, meant that you could appeal your case to Caesar and go to Rome. And remember, Paul does that very thing. He was a Roman citizen. And it was important to have uh, a Roman citizenship if you possibly could. And I was interested at one point in my uh, younger days of becoming an engineer. And I remember reading a book on uh, the Roman road system. Now, that, isn't that exciting? I mean... Who could love a book like that except a civil engineer, right? How do you build a Roman road? <laughs> and some of those roads are still in existence today. They, some of them are seven feet thick. Now, you think about it. Uh, we, we were looking at how they constructed those roads. And they graded different, um, uh, different kinds of gravel and, and different sizes of gravel and how they did interlocking gravel and all of this to make these roads solid. And, and why did they do that? Um, in part, for the same reason the Germans built the Autobahns. 
They said it was for the people, but it was basically for the military. Because at no time did the Roman legions ever exceed a million in, in force. And uh, they, they had rapid movement uh, ability, uh, both for military and they had a good postal system. Get this. You could get a letter anywhere within the empire. That was anywhere 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea inland. You could get a letter anywhere in the empire in two weeks. I can't even get some of my mail delivered in two weeks. It first has to go to Brazil or some other place. But um, why, why was this important? Do you remember the, uh, the word that we read from Paul? At the right time, God sent forth His Son. What was it just at the right time? When was the right time? Do you know that the gospel was spreading like a flame in the early century, in the first century? And guess who had made that possible? The Romans. The word could spread to various communities and the the branches of the empire, in part, because the Romans had already prepared the way and God was going to use it in a powerful way to spread the word of the gospel. And into this world, the refrain of the first Noel could be heard again. It was growing a little bit louder. What about the religious scene? With all these Jews living in, in places other than Jerusalem, they were a long way from home. Some of them had forgotten the traditions that had been so important to their forefathers. Rome had granted that uh, Judaism could be a, a legitimate, a legal a religion, and therefore had protection under the law, so long as they didn't rock the political boat or promote sedition or insurrection. This was a generation, a day, this first century, that had a hunger for things spiritual. I think Karl Barth was right. He said that man was born with some kind of God-shaped vacuum in his life. And he's not content until it's filled. And you know that the scriptures tell us that if we refuse to fill it with Christ, we will try to fill it with something else. Something, and it'll always be less than God. And so it was that the mystery cults of the first century were in their heyday. But they were morally bankrupt. They had broken their moral compass. And I have said that about the Europe that I understand in the last two generations, or the last, um, I, I really have studied uh, Europe from a, the 20th century on. And uh, here, here are a people who used to be at the forefront of the mission. That the Reformation began in Germany, and they used to send out missionaries to the four corners of the, of, of the earth. And what has happened? And in part, it's because they refuse to take the moral high ground. And they've become very passive in their attitude. Just, just don't rock the boat. Let anything go that goes, as long as it doesn't disrupt the powers that be. Everybody's right, nobody's wrong. Does that sound strangely familiar to America as well? The value of a human being was therefore, in Jesus' world and ours, measured by being politically correct. 
belonging to the right group, the right political party. In Israel, it was not just political, it was also religious party. And there were religious zealots, of course, and there were religious iconoclasts who said, nah, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to go live in the desert. And so the Essenes took their leave of the Pharisees and went and built their own community in Qumran. And I'm glad they did because they, they were preservers of the texts. And we have discovered beginning in 1947 in the caves of Qumran these, the, this really a cache of ancient scrolls and texts of the Old Testament and the intertestamental period. And a great deal is known because of this community uh, and their, their drive to, uh, to preserve some of the ancient ways. And yet they did it by disassociating themselves. They weren't trying to minister to the people around them. They were just kind of huddled, a holy huddled concept. And then there were also religious terrorists. The Skari, for instance, were a group who uh, moved around in uh, amidst a crowd. They, they wore uh, robes in which they hid daggers. And they would go through and take out their political opponents by pulling a knife and stabbing them, uh, taking, trying to take their life, and normally were successful. And yet, the first Noel came to a people just like that, and just like us. What about this hope of a Messiah that was born? You say, okay, uh, that's the general. That's, you've used the big, broad brush to paint that picture. Now, let's... Is, is, there, is there any light to be put on the canvas, or is it all black? <laughs> is, it, are, are we, is it possible for us to see a few glimmers of, of light? Oh, yes. If we look at what God was doing in the Old Testament, we'll see that He had appointed a leader. We see it with Moses... He was perhaps a reluctant leader at times. (laughs) Lord, I'm just a stammerer, you know. I have a speech impediment. Um, You can't possibly use me. And God said, "Mm, yes, I can. You watch. And so he became the anointed leader of Israel, God's people. And God used Moses. But God used the judges as well. It was said that the, the, the period of settling in, once the Israelites got into the promised land, they had to settle it. They had to, by conquest, they had to, to regroup and settle this land and drive out the inhabitants and start new roots and traditions. And God raised up judges in this period of time to, uh, to, to form military groups and to defend itself and to um, push out the, uh, the raiders. And it was said that God raised up leaders, anointed leaders, with his blessing upon them. And then the next period came the prophets, the school of the prophets, beginning with Samuel and moving um, through the the next centuries. God used the prophets as a, uh, for want of a better word, as a check against the abuses of the political leadership. Because what we began to hear was, Thus saith the Lord... The Lord is not happy with the way you've been living. The Lord is not happy with you priests. 
and, and you're uh, diverting what belongs to God to your own benefit, the Lord is not happy with you people. He, he is not, uh, um, he's not willing just to keep on going and, and overlook all the injustices around. And you're perpetuating an, an, an evil society when He has given you so much. God anointed these leaders. But beginning with Isaiah, there was, there was a new tone. In the day of... Now, if you, if you think about a timeline, think about 1,000 years before Christ, the time of David. David is looked upon as, as the, uh, the bellwether, as the, you know, as the greatest king of Israel. And there were those who thought, oh, David has been promised that his, his reign would be forever and that there would always be a Davidic uh, king and his dynasty would last forever. And Isaiah began to, to talk about that as well a few hundred years, 150 years later. As he began to say, no, there's something more. It's not just David and it's not just a seed of David. He says, for instance, in chapter 9, he says, this one who has these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <laughs> these, these, these names, these, this one is God's anointed as well. A new leader is going to be raised up and he will have the government upon his shoulders. And he will be of the, of the lineage of David, chapter 11, uh, a, a root out of the stump of Jesse, David's father. There was all of this captured in the prophecy of Isaiah, pointing that God's inbreaking was coming. Now, when was it? I mean, that is the, that is the question, isn't it? When is God going to do this? Um, my wife turned me on to Shrek, the great uh, philosophical figure of our generation. <laughs> and uh, I, I couldn't help but laugh. Uh, where is it they're going to Neverland? Is that it? Um, um, where Shrek and Donkey are riding. Uh, and it reminded me of my own kids. And Donkey keeps saying, well, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Somebody has to be asking, when is God going to break in? Are we there yet? Is it time? We've been writing so long. And the years and time have come. And Did Isaiah know? I don't think he knew when it was going to be. In fact, if you look at Isaiah's prophecy... It's as if he's standing in the middle of the railroad tracks. You know what it's like. You've done it. Come on. All of you as kids, you've, haven't you ever walked on, on the railroads? And just, no, not the L train. Uh, they, they, no, that middle rail will get you. <laughs> um, but in a, think of a, the, the railroad tracks. and It's, a, it's actually the problem, there's a, there's a term for it, it's called the problem of parallax. But it's where... There's a vanishing point, and, and from this perspective, you see two rails, and they're about this far apart, or whatever distance that is. And you say, ah, 
these are rails. These these are this far apart. Here's here's the dynasty of David, the seed of David. Yes, there it is. And and over here, Isaiah said, well, there's something else it's called the day of the Lord. And and yet, when they they meet out there in the distance, it looks like for sure there's a there's there's a meeting point. And the New Testament says, well, this rail is a little further into the distance than than this rail because this rail that the seed of David is coming first and is going to announce good tidings of great joy. You're going to see it first. It is the hope of the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, the, the psalmist in, in uh, Psalm 17 picks this up and he says, See, Lord, rise up for them, their king, the, or, excuse me, raise up for them, their king, the son of David. He will possess the nations to serve beneath his yoke. He will glorify the Lord with the praise of all the earth. He will cleanse Jerusalem in holiness as it was of old, that the nations may come from the ends of the earth to see his glory, bearing as gifts her sons who had fainted, and to see the glory of the Lord with which God has glorified her. A righteous king, taught by God, is their ruler." And there will be no unrighteousness among them all the days. For all will be holy, and their king, the anointed Lord. There he is, foreseen, the anointed Lord. These verses are really the same theme as Luke 2:11. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we see this again in Gabriel's testimony to Mary because this was the first Noel, the announcement of it. He says he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is, this is the beginning of a new inbreaking of God. 400 years of silence are about to be broken in the, in the birth of a king. One of Davidic lineage. And we know this both from Matthew and from Luke, who take both Joseph and Mary's lineage into consideration. So one is illegal. And one is God's lineage through Mary and, and show that he, either way, he's a son of David. But what about this inbreaking? Why is that important? And what difference does it make where you are today? One writer captured my attention this week when she, she wrote about the confinement where we exist, the prisons where we exist, the enslavements where we exist, and what this inbreaking of God does. And she said it's not just thinking about someone who is physically in prison, it's being in prison to sin and to self and to our own creatureliness. This advent that we talk about is the coming near of God. In Christ, breaking through in this time of Christmas to break our bonds, to free us, 
to open up what is new before us. One who knew physical confinement, but who wrote a a Christmas devotional was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He would be executed by the Nazis just as World War II was uh, drawing to a close. But for a Christmas meditation, he wrote words that I want to close with today. He said, Christ is breaking open his way to you. He wants to again soften your heart, which has become hard. In these weeks of Advent, while we are waiting for Christmas, he calls to us that he is coming and he will rescue us from the prison of our existence, from fear, from guilt, and from loneliness. Do you want to be redeemed? This is the one great question Advent puts before us. But let us make no mistake about it. Redemption is drawing near. Only the question is, will we let it come to us as well, or will we resist it? Will we let ourselves be pulled into a movement coming down from heaven to earth, or will we refuse to have anything to do with it? Either with us or without us, Christmas will come. It is up to each individual to decide what it will be. Advent, his birth, is upon us. The first Noel is here. We need to respond to it. Shall we pray? Father, remind each of our hearts the areas of imprisonment that we have not allowed the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death and the resurrection of Christ to invade. We have tried to keep it sacred and secret as if we could hide it from your eyes. But it is dirty and foul smelling and our sin is before you and we know it. Help us to confess even now that we are in need of this Advent, this coming at Christmas. Help us to see that in this first Advent, this first coming, this first Noel, there is the announcement of hope and joy and possibility and purpose and future, all wrapped up in the person of that gift that is so indescribable that we just don't have all the words we, we need to describe this incredible gift of our Lord Jesus so we we ask you to help us come and let us adore him for he is Christ the Lord we pray this in Jesus name Amen